All we need is a place to be And a few good friends for some company If you'd like to stay, you don't have to leave We'll leave the lights on and the door unlocked If you drop on by, you don't have to knock We're happy to share whatever we've got Hi, I'm Clay, and this is Yarn About You A podcast where I get to chat with people I know and love As well as people I'd just like to meet and hear their story Yarn About You would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this podcast was recorded. We'd like to pay our respects to the Elders, past, present and emerging, for passing on their knowledge and stories, keeping the Indigenous culture alive for generations to come. Today's guest is Annie Wright. Annie is a local Sydney and Central Coast resident with an extensive background in the film and music industry, both here in Australia and internationally. Annie's worked with the likes of ABBA, David Bowie, The Eagles, Lou Reed, John Denver, Sting and the Police, Annie Lennox, The Village People, George Thorogood, Renee Gayer, Marsha Hines and more, many of which becoming lifelong friends. Annie's been described as a pocket rocket with a passion for promotion and I'm very happy to call her my friend. I hope you enjoy our yarn. Annie Wright, welcome to Yarn About You. Thank you, Clay, and thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. No, I'm so excited to be talking to you because I know I'm looking at um, at your resume here and the the amount of people that I just want to ask you about is incredible. (laughs) So, But I always start at the very beginning. I want to know about your parents. What what did your parents do and where did they come from? How did you end up being here? Yeah, well, that that is certainly a good way to start because a lot of my career really was based on my parents, on their belief in me and their values and uh, their guidance. Uh, So my mother um, was, when she was 19, she joined the... she, She was actually a secretary who did shorthand back in the day for Universal Pictures. She worked wow. in St Patrick's and St Patrick's, you know, really produced some wonderful um, secretaries and that's what you did, shorthand, etc. So, so whereabouts was this? This was, um, so my mother grew, my mother grew up at Chatswood mm-hmm. and um, they first, my grandmother bought, who was from Gympie, Queensland, my mother's side, she bought a little cabin um, at Avalon Beach and it was like the little fibro house that grew. And my father, um, so when, when mum and dad got married in the 40s, uh, this is after the war, uh, they, um, that's where they lived. And that's where I was born. And we still have that home in Avalon. It, my sister has it now. But it's uh, definitely not a cabin anymore. It's grown up. <laughs> wow. And, and the Chatswood house, is that still? Yeah, yeah. I live actually in the, in the Chatswood house where my grandparents lived. I um, was the 30s home and I knocked it down and um, rebuilt it in the 90s. And uh, it's, yeah, so we still have those two. And, of course, Copacabana. Um, my parents built Copacabana, um, the house in, uh, in the 70s. So we have three family homes. So they were very um, industrious. They were middle class. They weren't rich. They just knew how to, you know, look after things, recycle, take care of that. We were all taught all of those things, look after what you've got, don't throw things out, it could be used for later and everything. So all those things were really useful and take care of the environment. We were definitely looking after the environment. Copacabana, by the way, um, on beautiful uh, uh, 
beachside town in the central coast of New South Wales, about an hour north of Sydney. Yes, yes. So it's very easy to get on that freeway and come up for a weekender, which is wonderful. So, um, and beautiful where we are because we look straight out of the headland. Uh, and so my parents, before they got married, my mother was with Universal Pictures. She was the secretary to the general manager. That didn't mean a lot to me when I was a teenager at all because it was so hot. But she said, oh, you know, I used to meet Errol Flynn and all these others. I was like, wow. yeah, who's Errol Flynn kind of thing when you're a teenager. And um, But, yeah, she used to write a lot of their releases and do secretary. But she was more PR. She, she did a lot of publicity stuff from what I've gathered years later. And then war broke out and my mother went into the RANDs. She was number seven of the first ten intake of the Women's Royal Australian Navy. Amazing. And she was 19. So uh, then after the war she returned and they snatched her back to go back to, uh, to Universal. So where did she go in the war? Uh, my mother was, um, she was stationed in Canberra and she was also stationed, they sent her to Perth. In fact, the notoriety that comes from my mother is when um, she did Morse code and, you know, the um, other, there's another, you know, did it, da da, I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> Mum would um, be shocked that I can't remember. But anyway, it's, it is a form of Morse code. Um, it'll come to me. Anyway, uh, she was stationed. When the Sydney, our famous Sydney ship, um, was destroyed and she was on watch and when they exhumed the Sydney in the 90s, mm-hmm. my mother's testimony exonerated the captain wow. because all those years they were thinking that was he complicit, was he negligible uh, and it was a, a, it was a German raider but it was unflagged. So my mother has been... They did a whole display on my mother in the War Memorial about her time there. They had her uniform. They had all this information. This was only in 2005, I think, I I saw that. And Mm -hmm. um, she didn't pass away until 2016. So I I took all the photos and showed her. And and she was very, very proud of her um, war years. And my father was... So she met my father after the war and... um, he was um, in the Navy as well and uh, he um, fought at, um, in the Coral Sea and during the war. So um, he saw a bit of action, nothing really heavy, but, you know, it was some serious stuff. And so my parents, um, I'm a child of uh, naval war vets and I'm definitely a child of uh, naval people. They taught me to be very orderly. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good thing. When you're a teenager, you don't want that. Absolutely. But when you get older, it's so good to be orderly. <laughs> Absolutely. There's not enough of it these days, is I there? Agree. I agree. I <laughs> agree. Right. Uh, so, uh, so children, when, when did they come along? When did, um, when did your parents decide okay, to... Okay. My brother was first born. Uh, he was uh, in... Uh, let's see. I was born in 55. So he was born in uh, 52. And... Uh, Yes, so they were married in the like my my mother married late actually in life really she was twenty seven okay yeah but it was over the war and different things of things that was happening she's got great memories of the war she's talk about the war all the time nothing like uh, faulty towers when he goes don't mention the war <laughs> no my mother used to mention the war all the time you know and we're thinking we've heard this story a hundred times you know when she went off in a special plane and she loved the Americans and the Dutch and you know. 
particularly, um, you know, all the servicemen, they all, you know, it was a great camaraderie. So my brother was born first, there's four, four children, and uh, he's now, you know, he's, uh, he's up in heaven, my brother. He died in 2014 of massive heart attack, but, uh, you know, he's, he was, I was very, very close to him. And uh, I have two other siblings that are younger than me, and they got to all of them got to experience my journey in my life with the entertainment and the rock and roll artist, Absolutely. all of them, and my parents, because my parents, I certainly got brownie points because when Perry Como came out in '76, my parents met him backstage at the Horton Pavilion. So all of a sudden. I, I was elevated in my parents' eyes that, you know, you're not doing it. All that music stuff really was, you know, had some merit to it. We've obviously jumped now to your music and we can't stop. Yeah. Um, how did you end up in the music industry and when was it? Well, uh, my mother, getting back to my mother, was, uh, you know, she was actually a, a women's lib feminist without burning her bra. Back in the day. I mean, she believed and she taught me, which is what she'd experienced as a young woman herself at 19, we could do anything a man could do. You know, in, in regards to uh, it was a very male-dominated industry, well, particularly the entertainment business, music industry, but my mother, um, she, 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 she put that faith in me about... And I didn't have that... Um, I didn't have that issue in my mind as a young girl that um, that we're different and subservient and not equal to men. You know, I understood the whole generational, the, the, the gender thing, but it just wasn't... I just never had that uh, attitude that I can't, I can't do what they do. You know, so she, that's where I got it from. So she found the job in the paper. And, what, and how old were you then? I was uh, 19 mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was an assistant. It was RCA Records, which end up being um, Sony BMG now. Uh, but my mother found the ad and, uh, and I'd already had a job. I, I, was an, uh, I, I was interested in English and art. That's all I was interested in. In fact, growing up, you know, my parents never, ever gave me a hard time for failing <laughs> in school and wanting to get out of school, like failing as in subjects like, science and economics and all that. I didn't want to go on to six year. I just wanted to get out and make money. But I did start working at Woolies, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But the fir- but, So that was my first job, but I was at school and I was 15. I was underage, but I, they didn't know that. They don't ask for your birth certificate. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get money, you know, earn money Thursday nights, Saturday mornings. I only ever wanted to work at Woolies in either their record counter or their lolly counter. And I was a little over 15 and their record counter didn't have all the pop top 40 chart records. They had a mixture of um, uh, all the um, uh, deluxe label ones that were, you know, uh, uh, a mixture of, you know, just, yeah, very, yeah, I can't even think the of The compilation word. party budget. mixes. Yes, exactly, the... budget, budget records. It was all budget records. So it was not, and, and prior to that, I grew up, um, and that's why I was lousy at my homework. I grew up listening to a transistor. Did all my homework to the transistor. I had a transistor, little tranny going all the time. And I'd collect top 40s from 2SM, 2UW. So I loved 
music. I used to make a list of all my favourite songs and, you know, save up my money for a record and the first record I got was uh, the Easy Beats, Friday on My Mind. Wow. <laughs> and uh, back then it was singles. So, you know, we, we buy the singles and then, you know, eventually you get enough money, you buy your album. And so my parents didn't give me um, – we never got uh, pocket money. You know, we did, we did our chores around the house and everything, but you don't earn your money for that. Mm. It, when you're old enough, you can get a job. And it was great to, to have that um, uh, system and, and, and values in place so we were able to know that, you know, you, you earn your own money, you know, and you work hard and then you get reward and recompense. So when I was at Woolies, this is how – this was probably the first – uh, impression I got on how you can uh, develop and guide people with music to get a reaction from them. So one record, I still have this budget record, it was a soundtrack of all these great movies of the 40s and everything. You know, it was Tchaikovsky and B-flat minor and all these very emotive soundtracks, you know, that were there. And I still have this. I found it the other day. And uh, so I was bored, you know. Th- th- they didn't have pipe music on at Woolies. They, th- th- it was just no noise, no music, nothing. So I had the record player, so I was able to just put on some records, you know. So I did. I was like the DJ. Wow. Anyway, I mean, the general manager there really liked me. He wanted, me, he wanted to train me as a manager. He just so thought I had what it took and everything, but I was not interested really. Uh, I, I stayed there for a few years, just Thursday nights, Saturday mornings and holidays and they were very good to me. Anyway, I remember playing this record and I watched people from the other counters, particularly the real emotive one that I knew, and I'd watch them and they'd all look up and they'd look over to where I was and they'd come over and go, what's that music you're playing? What's that record? And then the sales manager for this particular budget record of the soundtracks, they couldn't believe that Thursday night and Saturday mornings, they were just like, you know, they were all being, you know... Sold out. Sold out. <laughs> anyway, so that was probably, without my knowledge, that was my first entrance into promoting records mm. and seeing people's reactions and knowing Absolutely. how you could pick a hit... Something that would stir people enough to buy. Uh, so, so I went on to. Um, I used to do that. Do that. Then I worked to my first job. My mother found for me after that um, was um, uh, this mailing house because I was good at art at school and I was good at um, English. They were the only ones I was interested in anyway. I didn't want. I knew I wasn't going to be a scientist. I wasn't going to be a mathematician. I didn't care if I failed. You know, I still know how to add up. <laughs> and uh, and so my parents never put any pressure on me. Like, oh, you failed science. You failed economy. You know, no, they were just grateful that I could still stick at school and all that. And uh, anyway, my mother found me a job in this mailing house, and I was the um, switchboard girl to the okay. general manager. Oh, terrible. <laughs> Shocking. I just <laughs> cut everyone off. But the general manager really liked me. And oh, I haven't, I'll, I'll backtrack in a moment when I had to go. My mother said, You need to go and learn typing. I said, I'm never going to be a secretary, mum. She said, No, I know. She said, But you just need to get typing, you know, so you can get a foot in the door when you want to even do your graphic art and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, Okay. 
So, um, so I did. So I, I, I went to, after my HSC, I went to uh, um, St Leonard's TAFE. It was a typing school. This was for shorthand and typing. And I said to Mum, I'm, and everyone who had gone to this, this particular class, they left school at fourth year. I left school because I was much younger. I was nine months younger. So that's why Mum said, you've got to go on to... Sounds like my father wasn't in my life. He was, but it was like <laughs> my mother, he was a wonderful dad. But my mother was more instrumental in these areas, and uh, and she said, "No, you got to go on to you know, HSC," and because you're much younger, and I did. So I was like a year older than most of the girls in the the, the typing school okay. college, and anyway, but they I got along with all of them. Anyway. I used to say to mum, I'm not going to learn shorthand. She says, no, no, darling, don't worry about it. You don't have to do that. Just learn to type. And I said, okay. So I go to the school and I used to sit there and just like don't take any kind of shorthand doing anything. And then I said to the teacher, I said, look, I don't want to be disrespectful. I said, but I'm not going to do the shorthand. And they were like, well, they didn't know how to deal with that. And they went, oh, okay. Anyway, so all the girls... They used to, you know, they knew this. And they said, well, we don't want to do shorthand. I said, no, no, you have to do shorthand. You're going to be great shorthand. You're all going to be fantastic secretaries. You've got to do the shorthand, you know. You single-handedly killed oh, shorthand. Oh, I did. And, and you know, well, well, they, they almost killed me because in the end, and I'm encouraging them to continue on, they're going to be great shorthand. <laughs> legal. Oh, they need it. You need that when you go to a lawyer's firm and you need it in this firm and blah, blah, blah. And they're going, why not? And I said, because, I, well, don't worry about me. Anyway, and because I had such an influence over them and I wasn't trying to be a leader, so the principal called me in after about six months and I did fudge it a bit pretending I was doing shorthand mm. because it got really uncomfortable, you know. And she came and she said, Annie, or well, I was Anne, or just Anne back then, you know, they all call me Annie much years later. She said, Anne, she said, uh, we all really like you and the girls like you you're very popular a lot in fact too much so that you have a major influence on them when it comes to shorthand I said no I've told them I've told them she said I know you've encouraged them she said but you know what you're going to have to leave no. so I was expelled <laughs> no <laughs> well I know, but they said it nicely to me and anyway so this is after six months so I tell my mother and she said don't worry she said, you're going to be out long before all the rest of them, you know, because I got out before the rest of them. Mm -hmm. So it's what a great mother, you know. Anyway, so in the end, my mother finds me this ad in the paper after Progressive Mailing House and I was a lousy switchboard operator, but they didn't mind. I learned a little bit about graphics there and then I got bored and then Mum found this job in the paper, which was at RCA Records, which is Sony BMG now. And this is, if I may, I'll read to you what it said. Absolutely, and I'll put this ad, if, uh, if any allows me, uh, yes. on the Facebook page so everybody can see it. And have a laugh. So it's, uh, and of course my mother found this, Assistant Advertising Publicity was the uh, title. 17 to 19 years. Our very funky advertising and publicity officer desperately needs a cluey young assistant to help in all facets of her function. We require good typing speed, which I didn't have. And here's the good news. No shorthand. <laughs> it was written for me. You'd be involved in national advertising, publicity, promotions, merchandising, local and international. 
I just lost it for a moment there, international recording tours, continuous dealings with the media and becoming part of a young progressive team. The chances for personal advancement are outstanding. If you are compatible, I love this part, with Sagittarians and Librans and dream of working in fresh air, that was because the factory was at North Ride, and would love to believe that you have something to offer in any situation, call Sandra, blah, blah, blah. RCA's is located in beautiful surroundings in North Road with off-peak striking canteen, credit union and active social club. Sandra is waiting to welcome you with open arms. So you called Sandra? I did. I got the... Um, I, I realised afterwards there was about 100 people applied for the job. But yes, my mother drove me there. I didn't even have my driver's licence. She dropped me off, waited for me... And I went for the job and it was pretty amusing experience because um, the, the, the guy who was the boss, really nice guy, he would have only been about 27, Doug Amati, lovely, lovely, lovely guy and uh, certainly very pro-women as in, you know, wasn't a uh, misogynist kind of guy. Anyway, so I wondered why when I was sitting there and I was pretty, you know, it wasn't like bubbly and, you know, really gushy or anything, but I was just, you know, sitting there being, asking the questions, answering and all that sort of stuff and I was so glad there was no short end, you know, <laughs> after all I'd been through. And, uh, and he was playing me a David Bowie interview and he said, oh, I just want you to hear this, I've just got that, go and listen. I was like, oh, good, I could just sit back and listen a bit. And then I noticed there was about six guys would come on knocking on the door and ask him a question and I thought, boy, they're busy here. The general manager, the advertising manager, the, you know, the sales manager. There was all of them, all the managers, all the executives were all coming by while I was sitting there. And obviously they were coming in checking me out. Oh, okay. <laughs> I learned all that later. <laughs> Here's my brain thinking, my God, David Bowie's there, David Bowie's there. But uh, no, they were just coming in to check you out. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't David Bowie in person. It was a tape going <laughs> yeah. around. Anyway, and he said, so what do you think of this? And I'm listening and I'm going, I think he thought I was going to get really, really impressed and get all excited about listening to David Bowie. And I wasn't really. I just said, oh, that sounds really good. You know, it's like, well, and I still felt the same way. I didn't, obviously I got to work with David Bowie many years later. But anyway, so I was pretty grounded when it came to that and I wasn't, I was never starstruck. Mm. I never worshipped them. I just treated them well. And with respect, the artists I got the privilege of working with and, uh, and cared for them and tra- treated them the way I'd like to be treated. So I, I understand and I know, I know you, mm. um, but was there anybody, I know you said you weren't starstruck, but there was obviously, was, who was the person you were most excited to meet or most? Uh, I think, you know, when I first met um, John Denver, he was a superstar at the time and I really, really liked his music. And, uh, yeah, I was um, pretty – a little nervous, mm. you know, when I met him, you know, because he, he was so big and in, in – in, not in stature but is in his um, popularity at the time. And, um, and I was only 21. But, yeah, we became lifelong friends after that. You know you've made it if you get to work with the Muppets. <laughs> he got to work with the Muppets, so that's amazing. He did, didn't he? That's he right, yeah. yeah. So, um, so you started working there. Um, tell me a little bit about what life was like there and who was the first person, who was the first artist that you actually got to meet? Well, the first international artist was Lou Reed and I was was a year later, 75. 
So I went from being a secretary to doing publicity. And at the time, um, you know, I... You know, I learnt the ropes and I, I climbed the ladder to become a publicity manager, but it didn't happen... It wasn't like it was hand-delivered to me hmm. because um, women in that era were secretaries. That's what women did. Women did not have any executive roles. They did not have anything. And I didn't even understand what publicity and um, promotions was. I mean, when I started, because I love music and because I had a natural ability to connect with people and communicate... Um, you know, I um, I was actually involved in um, pioneering because it was the infancy days of the music industry with regards to publicity and marketing and promotions and, you know, compared to what it is today. But, you know, I was fortunate to be part of that era there where you could take risks, where you could learn and do um, pioneering, developing and guiding careers of, of artists both Aussies and overseas ones, because no one was telling me, no, you can't do that, we don't do that. And so I got a break only because Doug Amati left and so did Sandra. Right. Yeah, they left because he was in love with the girl that was my, my had my firm, my position. She was went to London and he was missing her and Sandra was in love with Doug. It was a real love triangle. Oh, no. no, seriously, I was there. I was there for about nine months, and then they and we used to all do things together, like socially. Um, but um, it was very. It, it wasn't really exciting at all, really. Uh, I hadn't met. I mean, I, I guess I heard. I tell you, I met Digby Richards, uh, John Laws, all the uh, Lucky Star, all the country, really top country music artists. And, um, you know, they're the first local ones. And then, of course, Renee Geyer, arguably our greatest soul singer that we've produced. Absolutely. And she's gone on to be a lifelong friend where I end up, you know, years later I managed her and was her, was her publicist first and then I'm managing her as well. But, but back then, um, and I, I, I'll read you a funny story that um, was written in Good Weekend about Renee and I, which is pretty funny, but... But, but but it wasn't like I I was climbing the ladder to go, well, I'm going to be a publicist or I'm going to be a promotions manager. No, I just got – there was a gap where no one was doing it and I decided and I had the sales manager who was a very nice man because a lot of these guys, you know, bless them, they were really nice guys but they were big beer drinkers and everyone just went to the pub, every, especially Friday, right the whole day off. And I was bored with all that. I didn't like drinking anyway. It was, it was mazel for girls and, I mean, and didn't like beer, you know, and I never drank. I, I, anyway. And I found it all so boring, talking about nothing, you know, and just – and all the secretaries, they were lovely – but I was just bored. I thought, this is, not, this is not where I want to be. And I was in a record company. <laughs> so it wasn't your standard. It was very conservative, RCA. That's probably a better way of putting it. Nice people, really nice people. But I, if, if they probably hadn't gone, um, you know, Doug and Sandra, and left after nine months, um, I probably would have left. I would have gone, this is not where I want to be. I want to be art. I want to do, I want to do my art. And uh, anyway, so what happened was they took off. But in the meantime, I was my job was a little bit of typing and, and reviewers used to ring in and call for um, uh, their list of records. They, they'd get the release sheets 
and they go, I want this jazz record, I want this pop record, I want this one. And you just tick them off and you're talking to them on the phone, taking the order, like you're just taking orders and then you send it off. So I got to talk to a lot of these top journos, like Matt White, he was like the top showbiz journalist, Jim Oram, Jack Kelly, all these, you know, uh, John ha- oh, John came a lot later. Anyway, and I got to have a little chat with them and, and said, oh, have you heard of this one? Oh, okay. Anyway, after nine months, and I had a little rapport with them on the phone and having a chat, and this sales manager, I said to him, Barry, um, I really think if I can go, can I go and see these people? I want to take some records because I thought maybe we get some real press, not just reviews but interesting stories. Like I was already thinking of, like, this is a good story, this is a good story. Uh, and uh, he said, oh, well, what do you well, – yeah, he says, why not? And, like, this is going to News Limited or Fairfax. And he said, why not? Or Woman's Day, you know, I do those ones, uh, ACP. And I said, okay. And I said, but I don't drive. And he said, oh, he said, well, you just get cabs and put it on – expenses we'll do expenses for you so that's what i did and so my first time you want to hear the story the first time i went in yeah when i went into news limited so i called and i was very i was quite i was wasn't too bad on the eye um i had long blonde hair straight blonde hair quite slim and a little quite cute looking you know and uh anyway my uh so matt white they all were in the big open open floor with their typewriters and I'd booked to see him, to come in to see him at News Limited in Surrey Hills. And uh, they said, uh, and then he, he, someone said, oh, you have a visitor. And he came out and he put his head out and he said, oh. He said, uh, oh, I'll get the guys, we'll go down to the pub. So he was a Fleet Street journalist. He knew Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. He was a raconteur, great t- storyteller. So he brings a couple of the other journos and we go to the local pub. Remember, I don't drink. Mm. And I had hepatitis when I was a child, so I definitely wasn't really, shouldn't be drinking anyway until my liver sort of got better. And, uh, and I knew that and I didn't like the taste of it anyhow. So we're sitting there and they're ordering wine for me, Moselle, and they're drinking the beer and we haven't even eaten. And I'm sitting next to a plant and I'm thinking, oh, this will be good. I'll just, while they're not looking, just keep pouring and pouring. And you didn't even, you, you didn't even have water. You have to go and beg for water at the bar back then. And uh, anyway, so eventually they had so many rounds. I did manage to probably drink a wine and a half on an empty stomach. And because I was saying to them when they were ordering, I said, I'd just like an orange juice, please. Get her a wine, get her a wine, you know. Get her a Moselle, you know. And uh, anyway, so so I finally got, you know, and I'm just listening to them all telling stories. I'm not even talking about my product. And um, I got up to go to the restroom and uh, when I got up, oh, everything was moving. And I obviously I was, didn't have a good time, a little bit of a chunder in the bathroom and uh, in the restroom and uh, I came back and I was flushing my face trying to get that grey look out of my face and I come back and Matt looked at me and he said, get her an orange juice. (laughs) (laughs) So it became famous for me around the traps whenever we'd go to events or, you know, like we had a lot of record uh, parties and a lot of um, 
uh, shows and everything and everyone they were all like get her an orange juice it was called get her an orange juice <laughs> it was pretty funny um yeah so that was began my day and of course matt and all these journalists they ended up writing all these great stories and all these records and had never been done before no one would ever go and see them that i mean they go to radio with a record but no one ever actually went to the print media this is before countdown and before sound so we didn't have uh, we only had gtk we didn't have a music programs so so you, you didn't realize but i did it out of my own boredom because I was bored sitting around. I was not a nine-to-five sitting at a desk taking on. I'm a people's person. Mm. I wanted to go out and meet people and talk to them. And, and I, I finally got up the, the, the gumption to be able to have a chat about records because I was kind of shy about that. I was only young, you know, and they were all knowledgeable about everything, about music. So you, 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 you gradually just get trained up and got better at being a salesperson, Absolutely. being a promo person. So that's how I began. And, um, yeah, so it was very – it was a real exciting time and I, I became, um, you know, Australia's first um, female record executive. Wow. I know. It's amazing. From secretary to the top. <laughs> but that's it an amazing it, story. It wasn't easy, but it was still fun. I mean, I, I had my standards and, and that's what I kept all the way, you know. But it's interesting, when I started getting a lot of press – um, for the artists, and then RCA was seeing this and see they then called me the whiz kid. So they, even though they did not want to promote me, they had no choice because mm. I had I was really making, you know, kicking goals big time because RCA was not getting and all the other record companies were saying, why is RCA getting all this spread in the paper for? not so great albums we've got better catalogue better what's going on and anyway i started developing other ideas promoting records by if it was a, a not a very f- fun record like there was one called disco roller skates or something so i said okay we're going to go roller skating so to, into the radio my silly idea since i don't even roller skate <laughs> And here we were on the Harbour Bridge, someone's pulling me along. We never even got permission. I can't believe we did this. Someone's pulling me along on a rope on the Harbour Bridge. I'm page two now. And I'm yelling at them, whose idea was this? And they say it was yours. Don't listen to me. <laughs> so Don't listen to me. Hang on. On the road, on the Harbour Bridge, not on the footpath? No, on the main road. Oh, my gosh. This was the 70s, <laughs> 79, and me and my little shorts and... Stop and, and I looked like I knew what I was doing, but I, I didn't. <laughs> All for a publicity shot. So so uh, Dinah Lee had a record, which was a s- disco record, and and uh, had must have had something to do with gangsters in it or mobsters or something. So I said, let's get up dressed up as gangster moles. So we had these Tommy guns and gangster moles of furs, and everything. we busted into the radio station. <laughs> they love it. All this got so much publicity. The, not that we know if the pub, if the record sold, but we got a lot of attention. Sounds like great fun. So I was very theatrical, mm. and I and, and and when I was at school, I loved drama. If I wasn't going to do this, I would have been an actress. I know that, and I, and I did go on to doing acting much later, anyway, in corporate videos and ads and stuff. But that was that's the creative part. So this was to me. Um, it was doing. I was. It was. It was out of boredom and out of fun. I had to create my own interest and my own fun. And I remember Dennis Hanlon. He's not with Sony anymore. He was the chairman of Sony for years, and he really 
he really liked me. I said, and he go, what's she up to now? Oh, mm. gosh, she's paid to. He says, okay, which one of you is getting dressed up? Somebody <laughs> is telling the guys they've got to get dressed up. And he's going, and a lot of, a lot of all the record companies, we're all, we're all mates. And we all used to meet yeah. at the pub and exchange records and things like that, all the PR people. And uh, anyway, so they said, oh, we couldn't wait for you to go on holidays. Because they said the pressure was off them, you know, because they said, well, you just raise the bar, you know, because it was never done. It was all guys doing it, promotions anyway. Now, you know, so I I feel very, um, I feel very proud of the fact that I kind of instigated a a whole new way of um, promoting records. Absolutely. So you should be proud. Out of of boredom. (laughs) But when you talk about... um, promotions or doing uh, promoting somebody yeah where does that start and, and what, what do you mean by that so you've got a, an artist who is presented to you they want to promote a particular album or a song yes okay so we would um so when i when i became the promotions manager in sydney um i'd be on the selection meeting of a, a, a we, we would have we would have local signed artists and or we'd have international artists that were signed to RCA International and we'd immediately get their product. Elvis by far was RCA's greatest um, artist and biggest seller uh, around the world and um, so I was when I was at RCA I was fielding calls and promoting his records and and um, promoting all his product. And even to the point where I even met Colonel Parker in Vegas and I passed up the opportunity of meeting Elvis a no. year, yes, a year before he died. And he died, that was 76, because RCA sent me around the world uh, at 76, their little whiz kid. Uh, that's a whole other story and I'll come back to that. But but, the, you, but you met Colonel Parker? Oh, yeah, I did. And I remember he said to me, I was already on my way to California. I had... Um, by now there was Bob Cook who was the managing director of RCA. He was American and he saw he saw my talent and gift and potential and he was American, you know, and he and so all the rest of them just wanted to just, you know, squash it down because it made them look bad too, mm. the fact that they, they were as enthusiastic and progressive what I was doing. And uh, he – I had six weeks holiday and he said to me um, – uh, one day at some dinner we were at and he said, uh, and he was Mr Cook, up the stairs, you never got to see him, you know, he was one of those, you know, even our selection meetings and things we never got to, but he was, we knew he was a lovely man, his wife had Parkinson's and he was always um, just a very compassionate, decent man and uh, anyway, he, one time he he said to me, or oh, this dinner, um, he said, uh, Miss Wright, how are you going? I said, oh, Miss Cook, very well. He said, now, um, you've got uh, – he said, what are you up to? And I said, well, I've got six weeks holiday and they said I have to take it, you know, work-wise because there were so many artists I was dealing with by two years at this stage and revolving doors it used to be, coming and going, and I never had time for a holiday. And he said, oh, where are you going for your holiday, Miss Wright? And I said, um, well, um, I'm going to go to Bali. That's what you do at 21 if you've never been overseas – he said, why would you go to Bali? Why wouldn't you go to London or New York? And I go, oh, Mr Cook, I can't afford that. No, no. And he said, oh, okay. Anyway, so he comes back to me, invites me up to his office upstairs, and he said, Miss Wright, I've been thinking, how would you feel if we helped you, supported you on your trip, and we pay for your air and accommodation, and you go and meet all the RCA people in, you know, all the different 
our licensing companies in Europe and London and then you could take your holidays in between there. And I said, oh, Mr Cook, really? And he said, yes. So anyway, he rings my mother. There's my mother involved. And then they work out a plan and end up being a round-the-world trip. And so I did it and it was incredible. And um, so Perry Como put on a surprise party for me because I just work with him in in Australia. And how I treated them is you ask about how what we do. Okay, we, we, we used to uh, – so he was doing a tour. So he was already sold out concerts, the crooner, you know, Perry Como. And uh, so we would make sure that we got publicity for him. But, you know, you tie, you work in with the pub, the promoter at that. You get publicity, you can do anything. But as a PR, as a record company, we didn't have to sell a show. That was a promoter's job. Mm-hmm. We got the record sold at piggybacking the tour. But what I would do is I would take them to Koala Parks, organise a Harvard cruise for them. I'd, I'd package up really nice little gift packs and they weren't like... You know, these these days, if, if you have an overseas artist, they buy them some, you know, $20,000 painting or something of, you know, great Indigenous mm. artists. And, no, I was going, you know, boomerangs, little koalas. I mean, all this sort of stuff in the 70s and just give it to them, you know. Only because I, I thought they'd like... And they mm. did. They loved it. Absolutely. They just loved that you were just... You, 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 you spent so much time wanting to show how much Australia... Was wonderful and 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 diverse and 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 just um, made them feel welcome. So Pericomo put so they did the tour. I did this whole tour. I was going. I had a limo in every country picking me up everywhere. Go and listen to the record and go. Okay, I like that. Let's send that one home. You know, and we had got a few hits from me picking songs when picking hits in Europe. And uh, anyway, it was all great. By the time we got to this, I'm leading up to Colonel Parker. So. Um, so my mother, this vice president of RCA, Frank Mancini, and Bob Cook, the managing director, were the three that organised my trip. So my mother was in on everything because she was she was typing up what to do when I go to a place and you could you could do the Rhine trip, we'll book your Rhine trip for you because that's your holiday part and, you know, what do you do in Paris? And mum, she did all the research for me. She was incredible. So I was able to have all the record company people take care of me and then followed my mother's you know travel tips and you know and and I just had a great time I was only 21 but I was very responsible you know and uh, I got to I couldn't wait to get to the states and I got to New York and Frank Mancini the head guy who was participating because he was the one who introduced me to John Denver and to Perry Comer so he knew how well I operated with them you know and then I wanted to get to California after New York and um, because everyone wanted to go to California, it was Linda Ronstadt, the Eagles, you know, James mm-hmm. Dale, all those great country, Californian rock acts, country rock. And uh, anyway, they they added Las Vegas onto my trip. I said, and I'm on the phone to my mother from New York going, Mum, they've, they've added Las Vegas. I don't really want to go to Vegas. And here's my mother saying, oh, you've got to go to Las Vegas. And I'm holding the phone thinking, what, is she on something? Like, as if I would want... Like, my mother would not be going, go to Vegas. She Because it was... And, and for a 21-year-old, Vegas, believe it or not, was very uncool. 
It was in the 70s. It was the Blue Rinse set. It was for gamblers. And it was just, you know, so what was Frank Sinatra? We love him now. But, I mean, back then it was like, you know, not, not a 21-year-old. So for my mother going, oh, you must go to Las Vegas, I thought this is something very strange. So I said to Frank, Mr. Mansing, I said, what, what, why have I got to – he goes, I said, there's no record company rep there. And he goes, oh, no. He says, but you need to experience Vegas. I went, oh, okay. And I said, someone's going to meet me. He goes, don't worry about it. We've got it all organised. So I have the, you know, Hilton um, limo comes and picks me up. This three, you know, Hilton was the big hotel Mm -hmm. then before all these others. And and it was like, uh, there was like, you know, three sets of doors (laughs) on this big Hilton, this stretch limousine, like different from all the stretches now. And uh, anyway, so they pick me up. They take me to my room and... uh, and, the, and, and I remember the room, I remember there was a, this is the 70s, there was a TV in the bathroom, there was a phone on the toilet, like, you know, <laughs> it was just wild, and a huge suite, and, uh, and then I had a message to go to this suite at a certain time that afternoon, and I thought, oh, I wonder what, this must be their rep, you know, and it was a surprise party that Perry Como and his manager put on for me. There was Anne Margaret, Paul Anker, wow. Neil Sedaka, and all these other people. They're the three I did remember. Wow. And all these other people were in the area. Some were doing shows in the other hotels. And they did this for this little Aussie girl. Fantastic. I know. It was beautiful. It was really lovely. And that's when I met Colonel Parker. And have, you, have you seen the movie? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you think he was fairly portrayed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he, in fact, um, what was interesting, I, uh, I was invited up on stage at the Evoca Theatre, but that's another story. Oh, okay. Uh, to, and I did mention about how I passed up the opportunity of um, meeting Elvis. I mean, I, I, I kept that secret for a long time. I thought, oh, how could I? Anyway, uh, Colonel Parker said to me, and I met him only because of being with Perry, he said... Um, he said, you know, he's asking about Australia. He said, well, he said, uh, well, honey, he said, uh, you know, he said, uh, why don't you stick around um, and meet my boy? He'll be here in about a week. You know, who's going to be doing mm-hmm. Vegas in 76? And I said, oh, thank you, Mr Parker, Colonel. Um, I, I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll get back to you. Like, <laughs> get back to you? <laughs> I went to California and it was great because, see, I wanted to meet, you know, people and people asked me when I spoke about this on stage at Vocal, they said, well, you know, afterwards they said, well, did you meet the Eagles? I said, well, no, I didn't meet them that time, but I did get to tour with them two years later, you know. So, wow. so but the thing was I was so... Um, I was so involved in doing the right thing by RCA and they were paying for this around the world and you don't backtrack. Mm. So I could have gone, okay, I'm going back to Vegas. They would have said yes. Yeah. But I just thought, no, I'm not going to be pushy like that. Oh, God. And then following year, I'm fielding calls when he died. Yeah, very sad. But anyway, so yes, um, Colonel Parker was well depicted and he was never a colonel, by the way. Mm -hmm. So all of that's true, what they said. And he played a very good uh, role, Hanks, playing him. He was excellent. And, of course, the Elvis um, actor was, like, brilliant. 
Absolutely brilliant. Remember, when, when I was promoting in the 76, Elvis was Moody Blue style and he was very big and very mm. overweight. So, you know, it was, you know, I was in a different kind of headspace sp- head anyway. But uh, still, it would have been interesting. I would have been in that inner circle. <laughs> so, Annie, you've worked with a lot of artists, a, a lot of amazing artists. Now, I'm just reading here from a few of them. Um, you're talking about Lou Reed, who you've mentioned before, David Bowie, uh, John Denver, Annie Lennox, one of my favourites. Mm. She's just incredible. Is she as beautiful as, uh, as she seems she is? She is the real deal. I met her when it was 79 when she was with a band, The Tourist. Her and Dave Stewart, they were in a relationship at the time and they had this band together called The Tourist and they did the old Dusty Springfield song, I Only Want to Be With You. Remember? Mm-hmm. I only want to be with you. Absolutely. And uh, it was on a label through RCA. And um, I remember Michael Koppel was a promoter and they brought them out. It was just a small tour because the record was only a top ten record and it really didn't do much. And But I just really liked Annie. And she had blonde peroxide hair, long. It was very much the um, the glam rock you know, she was in a tutu, silk gloves, you know, very theatrical. And uh, she um, and she was just, you know, that great voice on stage. And and I just treated her and Dave uh, like as if it was David Bowie or it was John Denver or it was any other of the artists that came through. You treated everyone the same. But we just really hit it off, Annie and I, being, being a female. And um, <clears throat> so I... Um, so she was very grateful for the the care that I gave them, even though it wasn't like a big success, but they enjoyed live show wherever they could get it and touring Australia. Anyway, so she's Scottish. She writes to me in years to come uh, and, uh, you know, letters for by the pigeons, you know, <laughs> those, mm-hmm. those days. And uh, anyway, we wrote back and we'd be, you know, communicating. And then as time went on in 1980, I joined Mushroom Records, Michael Gidinski's label he asked me to open the sydney office because mushrooms group is um a very uh, is melbourne based i mean the mushroom group is a record company independent australian label as well as uh, a touring company frontier touring publishing company merchandising company and also it has another liberation overseas international artist so when you join Mushroom, you also wear different hats. I was the manager of the Sydney branch and I also um, became his frontier touring publicist whenever he brought out acts and it was like the, the early days of Police. I think, remember, Stray Cats, um, Devo, um, Madness, uh, you, and it was Madness. It was like revolving doors of Madness, UB40. Many, many acts and a lot of fun, really good and George Thorogood the Destroyers. Um, and they've they've George has gone on to being one of my um, very dear friends um, even to date. Anyway, um, back to Annie. So, so you're going to love this story. It shows how unpretentious she was. So time goes on. I moved to the states. Michael then posts me after two years at Mushroom in Sydney. He op- he has a label through A and M Records called we called it Oz Records, mm-hmm. and. He decided he wanted to post me there that I would be his, you know, representative. And I was pretty shocked because I was only 27 and I thought, wow, I've been to the States twice. But, I, you know, to, to him have the faith in me to, to um, 
run the label and tell those Americans what to do was a pretty good deal, you know, for me. And um, But I think one of the main reasons why was I was his rock and it wasn't the cocaine rock. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do those drugs. So I know that had a, you know, no, he knew me really well and he knew that I was um, reliable and together and good operator. So I had a great relationship with the late, great Michael Gudinski. Anyway, so um, here we were. I'm now moved to the States and this is 83. And of course, Sweet Dreams, Eurythmics is like the number one record. Now, you'll forgive me for this faux pas uh, uh, lack of uh, up-to-date knowledge of what was going on apart from Mushroom Records acts. So there was no MTV, all right, so I hadn't seen the film clip. Um, We had Countdown and Sounds were ahead of the game because we were on air from the 70s, but MTV, even in the 80s, hadn't gone to air. I think it was probably 84 or 85, but this is 83. So I've just moved there. Uh, I've only been there a few months. I'm preparing a tour uh, with Mentals Anything and Men at Work before they they became huge in America. Anyway, I was doing a, a tour with Gillian Armstrong for Starstruck, the movie. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was a really Absolutely good... Absolutely, I did. Yeah, good film, and we had the soundtrack. So I was absorbed in getting settled... Paving the way, breaking ground for my acts, and um, and I wasn't really au fait with um, who was in the Eurythmics. <laughs> okay, I, mm-hmm. I I I mean I wasn't paying attention to the pop magazines, looking at pictures. There was no videos. Anyway, I had no idea Annie was in the Eurythmics. <laughs> okay, because her hair was carrot head top yeah, and short. Yeah. Okay, so here's what happened. So I'm in New York with Gadinsky and I'm signing the books. To, I'm, I'm signing the reception in, 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 as I'm checking in because there was a big new music seminar. That's what they call the mu- music of the time, Spandau mm-hmm. Ballet, Police, Eurythmics. All wow. it was called new music. You know, they had to, Americans label everything. Anyway, so we were there and uh, I was going to be at this conference and um, – You've heard of Michael Chug, Chuggy, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was working for Michael Gadinsky at the time. He was running Frontier Touring, the, his his um, touring uh, arm, and uh, I was um, running. I was the director of Oz Records in the states. So we all had history. We all, you know, I knew Chuggy really well, obviously. Anyway, so I'm I'm signing in, and I look pretty much the same as in you know, same blonde hair. And I hear this voice from behind me, this woman saying, Annie, is that you? And I turned around and I see Annie and she's got a cap on, so I can't see her orange hair, but I can just see this hat and it's her face. And I go, oh, Annie, is that you? And she said, oh, Annie, what are you doing here? She said, oh, it's so good to see you. And I said, oh, Annie, it's so great to see you. And anyway, she said, oh, Dave's in the bar. You'll be so excited. She said, why are you here? What is going on? And I said, oh, Michael Gadinsky, I remember him. He's, he sent me over here. I'm working here. I'm living in, in LA now and I'm, I'm working for this Australian label. I'm like an Australian ambassador for, for all Australia. And she said, oh, how fantastic. Anyway, Michael Chug spots me with the number one mm. artist in the world at the time. He knows who it is. And as a rhythmics, so he comes like 
right up next to me. And I go, oh, Annie. So uh, this is Michael Chug. I said, uh, he uh, works with Gnitsky and he's a promoter. And he's standing there going, oh, this is gold. I'm with the number one, rec- you know, like yeah. artist. And then she says to me, so, and I say to her, this is Mike Chug, and she goes, hello, hello. And then I said, uh, so, Annie, what are you doing these oh, days? No. <laughs> and Michael Chug nearly passed out. <laughs> and without missing a beat, Annie goes, oh, Annie, Dave and I in this band, you rhythmics. And I went, oh, oh, I said, oh, that's you. Oh, you take your hat off. Oh, that's you. And she, I said, oh, right. I said, that's a great record, sweet dream. And she said, oh, I'm glad you like it. You like it? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's really good. He's standing there dying. <laughs> he, he's thinking, I can't believe these women. Anyway, but there you go, Annie Lennox, unpretentious. And from that moment on, we were just like uh, in each other's pocket. So I went on the road with her as a girlfriend. Um she wasn't on our label, but um, and uh, we just hung out together at the Sunset Marquee. We used to sit by the pool. We'd hang out and have our cocktails. We'd talk about men. That's all we talked about. Why can't men be like us? <laughs> well, that's made my day because um, to find out that Annie Lennox is absolutely wonderful is what I wanted to hear, what I needed to hear. Yeah. But was there anybody who was difficult to work with or difficult to deal with? Well, any particular way. Uh, it, I mean, and and just to go on about Annie, we stayed friends, and I did stay with her in London. So, so we, so she she was the real deal, as in a real beautiful woman, still is, and um, yeah, she's she's going to be part of my documentary. Oh, beautiful! Uh, which will be the final scene of the uh, of, of the documentary I'm producing right now, called Aussie Songbirds, and she'll be. It just came to me. I thought her song, because it's all about highlighting and exalting um, the female um, great artist of our day in Australia, from Joan Sutherland right up to Tina Arena Kylie and everyone in between. And uh, I thought the song, Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves. So that'll be the finale. Oh, wow. We'll have a big concert theatre at show, concert at the State Theatre with all those artists that are still with us and uh, I'll bring Annie out for it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So she'll come. I know. She'll still love doing this because she's been involved in the AIDS benefits and all things. She's really um, very, very involved in uh, the care of others and mm. very pro, you know, um, women's, you know, rights and movement and everything like that without being a, you know, a... Uh, you know, a, a real um, uh, beat-you-up feminist type of woman. She's not. She's really beautiful. Yeah. And she's got two grown daughters now too. I follow her on um, on social media and I can see that she's just lovely. She is. She really is. So getting back to the difficult ones, well, um, I think I mentioned earlier, Lou Reed was the first um, international artist at, in 1975 that I got to work with and I was just a young – I was 20 – and um, and I was barely out of my um, secretary assistant socks. <laughs> I was still I was still just uh, dabbling with publicity and trying to get things on. I think I was called a publicity officer at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and he hated RCA International, and of course it just spilled over to RCA in Australia. And he couldn't wait to get off the label, and so um, he. Um, so they didn't want it. That they were absolutely terrified of him. 
Everyone was scared of Lou. They really were. And he had a lot of downtime. And so they said, well, you look after him. And I was going, well, what do I do? And they go, just, just, just. Just go hang out with him and see what he wants. Take you know? him roller skating. No, no, we didn't go roller skating. <laughs> you know, we went we went shopping for import records. Oh, okay. Seriously, we did. Because I didn't have driver's license, we cabbed it everywhere. I knew all the cabbies. They're all so great, those guys. They're like, they're like my private drivers. They all knew me, you know. No mobiles then. I just did a landlines. But anyway, they knew, where, they knew me so well. They always looked after me. So... Um, I would hang out with Lou and he had a tranny boyfriend, girlfriend, boyfriend, called Rachel. Rachel was Puerto Rican and Rachel was taking these little Puerto taking um, you know, hormone tablets and um, you know, was getting little, you know, titties and mm-hmm. very tall, very really, really nice. Rachel was great. And Rachel loved me. Rachel was so sweet. And of course, Lou tolerated me in the beginning because he knew um that I actually was not threatening to him and I was um, nice to him and like to, you know, um, I just, he just knew I was young and innocent and just trying to do, but I took my job very seriously. I thought, okay, I'll take him to port stores and we did, we bought records, we bought Walkmans. Back then it was the new thing, you mm. know. And, uh, and then we'd get invited to Oxford Street to all these dens because he was the punk rock and they all thought, you know, he could take all the drugs and he was nothing. And then he'd say, and he could, he'd love to talk. And I just listened. I just, I was a very, very good listener. I can't, I didn't talk a lot then. I would just listen to them all. Mm-hmm. And he'd tell me, they all think I'm going to OD on stage, you know, that's going to be the big finale. He says, let me tell you, he says, I don't mix my drugs. He said, I'm a pharmaceutical, I'm a pharmaceutical brain. I know everything. I'm listening. I said, oh, so so what does that mean, Lou? And he said, well, he said, let me tell you. He goes, let me tell you. He says, you don't mix drugs. And he says, because you'd be dead. He says, so I just take speed. (laughs) Oh, okay, what does that do for you? It picks you up. (laughs) Oh, okay. And he goes, and it, you know, no, not, not a lot of damage, you know, not like heroin, you know. And I was like, oh, okay. So I was being educated. And then we go to all these import stores and he buy, and he was into country, classical, you name it. So he introduced me to all this interesting music that you would never guess that he liked. You know, anyway, so we went on to, it got to the point where, I thought he was so clever with his music background rather than this one-dimension punk rocker. And uh, 2SM, back in the day, no one did, they didn't do interviews, him and Bowie, unless they, they had to. It was better to keep the mystery anyway. Mm. So that was how you promoted a lot of those artists. They didn't do – all their shows were sold out, so you didn't have to do any publicity. But it was better they didn't because then the mystery would have – you know, gone. Uh, so, but so he he had sellout shows, but I really wanted him to do two SM, which was the number one station. There's no FM, and that was the big rock station. And my the the programmer is still a friend to date. In fact, he's a neighbour, lives near me at Chatswood. He still does his blues show on the community station nine nine point three. But Mike Drayson really loved Lou and wanted to do an interview. And I said he's not doing interviews. But, however, I'm going to give him a gold record presentation at the big 
the club at the time was called Matches and it was at North Sydney and I, I'd been with him for like a week by now. I don't know how we had all this downtime. Was uh, anyway, but it, we did anyway. So he, um, so he he was about to do a show, and uh, and I got him to got him to this matches, and you know talked him in. We're going to give you these gold record presentations. And he goes, oh, you know, I'll melt it down and put in my teeth. I remember he was saying. Anyway, so but I knew I knew he I knew him by now, and I knew he'd kind of get a kick out of it. So we did. There was only about ten of us. And I said to the Rolling Stone editor who also wanted to meet him, but he wouldn't have done it if I'd set it up any other way. And then I said to these two, Rolling Stone and to Mike Drayson, I said, look, the 2SM program, we're going to be at matches. You can be at the bar. We're at a restaurant there. It's open. I said, if he's in a good mood and I signal to you to come by, then that's what we'll do. But Otherwise, there's, there's no commitment, no interview and no... And that, I said, are you willing to take that risk? And they went, yep, okay, fine. So, all right. So, anyway, luck would have it. We give him the presentation, we do all that. And then in the distance was this record label um, guy from Wizard Records who had Marsha Hines, Hush, Air Supply, Rick Springfield, all these others, and I was promoting them. It was through RCA. He's sitting next to Dobie Gray. You probably don't know who he is. He's this black artist that was had this amazing song called um, Drift Away. Oh, okay. You remember Drift yeah, Away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful song. Anyway, uh, we're at this club, this, you know, happening disco, you know, nightclub matches at North Sydney, and there's not a lot of black people around, you know. So, so he's sitting there, you know, Lou, raving on about, his usual rage about RCA and everyone else. No one knows what they're doing. Everyone knows, you know, no one knows anything. And he's, he's kind of on the downer from the speed, I think. And he's just doing his usual thing. And all of a sudden, he looks over and straight over about, you know, 10, 15 feet away, he said, is that Toby Gray? He got all excited. And I'm looking over and I realise this guy who he sees is sitting with my friend who runs the label, Tony Hogarth. So I go, really? And he says, don't be great, drift away. And he's getting all excited. He's like this fan. So I thought, oh, this is great. So I go over the table. Hello, Tony. Oh, well, Toby, nice to meet you. Hello. And I said, um, we're here with Lou. Yeah, we could see that. And I said... Uh, um, listen, Doby, uh, whenever you're leaving, it'd be great if you just come by. And he goes, yeah, sure, sure, you know. And I said, oh, okay. Anyway, like about five minutes later, they're leaving. He comes over to the table. He steps by. And Lou, he says, hey, man, how you doing? And Lou goes, hey, man, yeah, yeah, cool. And, you know, and then he, you know, shook hands and they go, yeah, hey, hey, you know, and whatever they said, like that was it. He walks off. Lou Reed just about jumped out of his skin. He was I just met Lou. <laughs> I just met Toby Gray. I'm thinking, unbelievable. Everyone is a fan of someone. Wow, yeah. Seriously, that, I've, I've learned that. Yeah, every artist I've met, and I can tell you the David Bowie fan in a moment later on. Everyone's a fan of someone. So he's so excited. He's telling everyone about it's the greatest pop record ever written, and blah blah blah, and everything. And I'm thinking, oh, this is beautiful. This is the perfect time to cue my friends and at the Absolutely. bar up to the right. So I, I give them, I go over there and I go, come on down, just one at a time, just like you're wandering by, you know. They did and they went, oh, hello, Michael. Oh, hey. 
And I go, oh, my, can, can are my friends here? And he goes, sure. He goes, I've just met Dobie Gray. And then Jane comes by, I've just met Dobie Gray. So we're sitting down and we're talking and we're carrying on. Oh, it was fantastic. It was great. Anyway, so finally we wrap things up. He's talking. They're all talking away about things and he's in the best mood. And, I, and then Drayson says to me, you know, what are we going to do? And I said, I don't know, leave it. I'll just see how we go. And uh, he's staying at the Shadow Commodore when it used to be there. And I said to him, um, he says, so he's on a high. This is Lou. And he said, what are we going to do now? And, and uh, Rachel's still saying, oh, I'm going to go back to the hotel. And Lucas, well, what are you doing? I said, oh, Michael, he's, uh, he's a programmer of this radio station. And uh, he said to me that I could come by and play some records. And we're going to just going to do that. He said, oh, can I come too? And I said, Michael, Lou, Lou wants to come with us. Is that okay? And he said, yeah, man. He goes, well, can I play some records? He says, oh, I've got some. We've been shopping. You've got no idea. This is what it was like. And, and he goes, sure, man, yeah. And he goes, well, he says, and they're at the hotel. I go, all right, we'll get a cab and we'll go pick them up at the hotel. He goes, all right. And I said, he says, oh, what does this mean? I said, well, you can play whatever you want and talk about all those songs you like. And he wow. went, okay. So anyway, like I thought I had him. You know, I thought this is great. This is perfect. Yeah. Anyway, go pick up the records. We go back to 2SM. We happen to be in Clarence Street, 2SM. They're already in there. Um, Lee Simon, you remember Lee Simon? Yeah. He was great. Okay, he was the, the on-air jock at the time. So we're walking up with our bag of records that we bought and, and he knew all the other songs that we were going to get from the library and I go, and he goes, uh, I think uh, Lou Reed has just walked into the, <laughs> he could see through the glass of the studio. <laughs> and then I'm going like this to Lee. And then uh, Lou said, I said, come on, let's go and stir him up, you know, because he was in a good mood. And then Lou goes, all right. And so he goes in. And then he goes, wow. He says, this is like 10.30 at night. We've got Lou Reed. Hey, Lou, how you doing? And all of a sudden his voice just drops yeah. to this, I'm good. Yeah, man. Yeah. What's going on? Not a lot. Uh, and I was like, oh, here we go. Anyway, so that was that. Anyway, but, you know, it was okay. Lou was there and they got him he on air. There. Anyway, so then we go off into the other studio to record this album. Now, how you record an album is, what it works is you pick out like 20 albums or whatever it is and you then do an intro to say, I like this Dobie Gray record because it's this, this and this and then you drop the record in later. You do it later, okay, because otherwise you'd be there all night. And I'm guessing that he was there... All night? And that's what he wanted us to do. <laughs> so he then says when we go, oh, no, you dropped. He says, you told me, and Jane Matheson from Rolling Stones with us, and she says, you told me. And I said, yeah, right, well, yeah, that's right. And so so Michael Drayson lasted till 2 a.m. and then he said, I've got to go. And he goes, you'll never learn anything. And then Jane Matheson followed and she said, you'll never learn anything either. And so she did a whole cover story of Rolling Stone on this, which I will give you at some point, and yes. you can put it up on the screen. Yeah, please it's do. It's very amusing. So here's the finale of what happened. I sort of indicate to him that, and I'm in the same clothes, and it's winter, and I'm like having the DTs at this stage, and I said, um, Lou, I'll come back? And he goes, no, I'm your responsibility. You've got to stay here. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's popping his speed and I'm doing nothing, you know, no oh. coffee, no caffeine. Anyway, so we get back to the hotel, 
drop him off and he says, come in for coffee. And I'm like, all I want to do is go home. I just want to get in a shower. Anyway, I'm obliged to him and I walked in and we sat down and we got some coffee and, you know, um, it's like about 10 a.m. And he says, um, and he's on the downer and he starts the complain game, complaining about anything and everyone and criticising anything. And I'm at this stage, I'm only 19 or 20 and I'm like been up all night and I've been with him for a week and I'm there and then I just lose it and I just went that's it I said you've got nothing nice to say about anyone I said you're always criticizing people and I said and it's not right and I jumped up and I ran to them marched out and I went to the glass doors and the glass doors open I thought oh, I don't even have a getaway car and I thought <laughs> I'm going to be fired. I'm going to be fired. You know? And then hand comes from behind on my shoulder and he goes, it's all right. They're there. It's okay. And I went, I'm sorry. And he said, I'm sorry too. Come on. He said, it's okay. He said, you're very tired and you've done a lot. And, you know, he said, look, I, you, I'm, you, you go home. And he said, we'll talk later. And so Lou wouldn't go to the bathroom without talking to me after that. Wow. He completely – so he trusted me. He got to know that I really did care about him mm-hmm. and I got him what he was all about. And, in fact, what happened after that – so we got on really good after that. He we probably did. never had anybody stand up to him either. No, I know. For, oh, I know he hadn't. And here's what happened. So the next year he was off the RCA label and he was on EMI and we had his back catalogue, which was Transformer, you know, Walk on the Wild Side and such – and, uh, um, and another record, Coney Island, and EMI had the new records. So when he came back to do a tour, the, he was now going to have media conferences and one-off interviews, and he said, I'm not speaking to any media unless Annie writes with me. <laughs> so EMI was so excited. RCA were excited. The promoters were excited. They went, this is great. She's our, she's our girl girl. She'll make it happen for us. And then years later, I ran into him in New York when I was living over there and we ended up having coffee and lunch together. We literally ran into, and he was married to Laurie Anderson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's a good Lou story. And oh, that's an amazing I'll story. You, I'll give you the Rolling Stone. So he was the first difficult guy and Renee, at the same time, when she put out It's a Man's World, was the first female um, uh, Australian uh, that... Um, that I work with, and of course, Paul Kelly wrote um, "Difficult Woman" about her. I I love Renee, yeah. and I, I got to meet her um, after she did one of her gigs um, up here at Lazotte's. Oh, you did! And yeah. I said to her that um, you know, I, I can die now because I've heard you sing. Oh, um, she would have loved that. Oh, I said um, I can die because I've I, I've heard you sing. Um, a Midnight Train to Georgia, oh. and she said uh, she just looked at me and said, "Yeah, a lot of people like that." <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, I know I know. Do you she's remember f- what year that was? Because I was managing her during no, that time. No, I don't know, but I know I love the song. It would have been this century, this century. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But um, but but no, she she's just got one of the most amazing voices. But I know that she's famous for being difficult. And even that night when she was on stage, she was complaining about other artists and having her say, and she stopped the band and got cranky with them and. Um, but but wow, what a voice! Yeah, what a voice! What uh, a voice! Yeah, she, you know, in the states, were, because 
you know, our, our relationship has been, she was with RCA, she got off RCA, she moved to Mushroom, Mushroom then headhunted me to come over because they knew I worked really well with Renee back then. And I'll tell you a little bit of the Good Weekend story, the things that mm-hmm. she said about each other, which was great. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, w- I didn't want to do this interview, but, um, but Renee wanted it to happen and I'm glad it did because it really, um, it was uh, summing up our relationship and... Uh, Anyway, she um, so we spent time together in the states, and then I ca- when I moved back, I ended up um, I was her agent manager for a while in the nineties. But I've always been her confidant, her friend, and um, yeah, because we were both women in the industry that um, knew how tough it was, and we even though we were opposites, we were very much opposites, you know. And uh, and I say that in the Good Weekend story about what we had to say, but. Um, but I do, I love her because, yes, um, she's not diplomatic like I had to teach her, but she's real. She's really, mm. she's Israel. And, and um, yeah, she's got a great um, great sense of humour, very Jewish in her humour and her delivery. But um, I'll, just, I'll just mention how she, how this came about was Sue Skelly was the um, uh, mirror, back when the mirror was around, um, rock journalist. And she knew Renee and I because every I'm the goat. Like even now, people if they want Renee or if they want Jack Thompson, they go me. You know, because I've had so much history working with them at different I, levels. I've, I've been you. I've been with you when an event's happened, um, and you start to get the phone calls. Oh, you have? Yeah. Wh- yeah. Where's this? Um, I think it was um, when Michael Gudinski passed away. Oh yes. You, you yes. started to get phone calls from people wanting yes. to. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, but with with Renee, um, so Sue Sue knew our relationship and that you know that I'd work with her and and talked her through publicity and all that sort of stuff. So she was there to do, doing a good the good weekend the two of us, which is a well known thing of two people. Now how mm-hmm. it works is the the she interviews the two subjects separately, and she gives them the questions and they have no idea what their answers are, and. It, and we've told not to discuss it with each other, what the questions are, to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. And it makes it really interesting. But she came to me, Sue, and said, and this is only the century, and she said, um, we'd, lo- we'd really want the editor wants to do a story on you and Renee. And I went, no way. Mm-hmm. I said, no way. I said, you want me to talk about her? She said, yeah. And I said, I'm not going to talk about her. I can't say she was an absolute nightmare. I love her, but <laughs> I, I'm not going to talk about that. I said, there's no way. I, I couldn't. She said, oh, come on, just ask. I said, she won't do it. I know she won't do it. So I say, Renee, I've been obligated to ask you this. You know Sue, she wants to know, and I know what your answer has been. She said, let's do it. I said, are you mad? I said, we can't, we've got to actually say how things were like. And she said, yeah, go ahead. And I went, okay, all right. So we did. Anyway, so this is what Renee said about me. Annie was pretty, blonde, perky, bubbly, the absolute opposite of me. I was anti-perky, stupidly serious about... <laughs> stupidly serious <laughs> about, um, about my music. And she was from the record label. And in those days, they were sort of the enemy... Them and us guys, the musicians. But I grew into Annie. 
She's walked me through the PR valleys of doom and enabled me to emerge relatively unscathed. I was not easy to deal with in the early days. I never saw the benefits. The emphasis was not on image then and my thing was being a singer in the band. Talking about yourself, about what clothes you wore and what nail polish was just not interesting to me. Droll trivia has become very important nowadays. The longer you're around, the more people want to know about you, what your, what your garden's like, how you lost your weight. But I didn't think I ever made the connection between that and the number of people who turn up at your shows. Annie's strategy was shopping. A day doing publicity was always accompanied by a bit of shopping. Was there anything I really didn't want to do? Almost every single press thing in the 70s and 80s. You name it. The cover of Woman's Day with the daisies. I look like Mr Ed dressed up for the Melbourne Cup. I was dragged kicking and screaming into that hairdo. And there it was. The cover all over Australia for a week. And I hid for a week. The only good thing about that was shoot was that they let my dog Googie in a couple of the pictures Annie loved Googie. I have cats now because I'm, I'm, I'm on the road all the time and now she has a dog. When my cat, Mr Big, died when I was living in New York, it was Annie I rang. It was the same day Jackie Kennedy died and it was the worst day of my life because I loved Jackie Kennedy too. I'd see her on the Upper East Side all the time looking so fantastic, so elegant. Within two weeks I was on a plane out of New York to LA and within a month I was back home. I like this next part here. Annie is very sensitive but she's a tough operator with a sweet pixie facade and she knows how to do a one-two punch with a silk glove. <laughs> Isn't that classic? Anyway, I tend to be – I'll put that on my tombstone. Yeah, perfect. I get, I te- I get things – she said, um, I, se- I tend to be a little less diplomatic, sometimes a little more loud in my delivery. I get things off my chest quickly and forget where I am and who we're in front of. Annie was my agent manager for a while and that was fun. So, yeah, so it was really good. And, of course, I haven't even mentioned um, what I said about her – but uh, do you want me to just mention yeah, a little bit about yeah. that? So um, I said, this is what I said about her. I said, um, uh, Rene Gaya is one of Australia's most respected singers. She's currently, this is what the um, uh, article said, currently on tour promoting her 20th album, Tenderland. As a novice publicist in the 70s, Annie Wright, now f- I was 48 at the time, had an unenviable task of dragging the reluctant Gaya into the limelight. So this is what I had to say about it. Annie, I first saw Renee when she came to the RCA offices. It was around 74 and she looked very bohemian and and statuesque. Quite the formidable presence and there I am, all prim and proper in my Trent Nathan twin set. (laughs) I was 18, 19 and she was the first artist I got to work with. I had no idea about developing publicity campaigns. It was pioneering days. Women were usually somebody's secretary. But what I remember most was that, and she'll deny this, she was wearing her slippers. They were very much those hippie slippers, you know. They were definitely slippers. Um, 
What she wore on stage and off was always a source of astonishment. If ever we ever argue, it would be about that. On one occasion, we're in Brisbane TV studios waiting in the dressing room when the studio coordinator came in to tell Renee she can get dressed now. She could get dressed now. Renee was wearing white casual sneakers, black sweatpants, and a top. Thing is, she was dressed. This happened regularly because she was overweight at the time. Um, I'd be mortified watching her do a performance looking as if she just walked out of the gym. Renee was a publicist's nightmare, see? I got to say it. <laughs> yeah. She didn't see the purpose of talking about herself. I used to coax her to do interviews by, by promising we'd go shopping afterwards. The public sees Renee as confident and outspoken, a larger-than-life figure and a reputation for being difficult, intimidating, but it's a bravado persona. She's really a big softy. And, uh, and then I went on to say that she, you know, especially when she um, came to help Mark Hunter when there was a big fundraiser for him and a whole lot of other things I talk about in this article, which you could post up. Yeah. But um, I'm glad that we got to talk about um, our relationship because all those things, you just they just get to be forgotten if it's not um, absolutely if it's not documented you mm -hmm. know and so renee and i have stayed friends all this time but yeah we were the odd couple definitely. but it's just it, it's just about the voice i mean yeah. everything about renee is the voice yeah. and is it true that in the u.s they released um her album without any imagery because people thought that she was a black lady with that soulful voice yeah well the, the here the story goes because i was around when this happened i was in l.a John McLean, who worked for A&M Records, he was a really he was a black guy, really nice guy. He loved Renee, and he was he was helping her in A and R and everything. Anyway, she she got a deal with Portrait Records, and he said to them, to her, and to um, you know her, uh, Gadinsky and the rest, um, we're just going to put out a sample um, of a couple of tracks and send it around to all the R and B stations and everything. Anyway. They loved it and they had no idea she wasn't black. White Jewish girl. This is the 80s. And uh, so they said, um, we're going to follow up with an album but don't put your picture on it. And Renee got really, you know, naturally um, hurt by that, saying, no, I want to be, I want my face on the cover. I'm proud of being a good Jew, a white mm. Jewish girl and blah, blah, blah. But... But she didn't realise there was the same racial discrimination was between the blacks to the whites as the whites to the blacks. So so as soon as they got the album with her beautiful smiling face, very white face on the cover, they dropped the record. Wow. Yep. So that was goodbye to your career on the R&B stations in the States. Yeah. Yeah, so she had a lot of... Um, Misunfortunate, unfortunate things happen, so she never broke it in the states. Can I ask you because uh, you mentioned once about um, Bowie, Bowie's yeah. who who was his, who did he love, who was he the greatest fan of? Uh, well, uh, there was a time when he was out here in '78, his first tour. I convinced him it was a sold out show, um, very big. I mean, I think I don't know three or four Horton pavilions. They're all sold out. There was no stadium back then. This is what we had. And uh, anyway, he, again, he was like Lou Reed and like Jagger. They just never did interviews. And it was better that way. 
because it was, makes them more mysterious. You just look at their records, their covers, their style, and it keeps them that way. Anyway, I had looked up, found out all about Bowie, and knew he was a very talented artist. Not singer-artist, but a painter and artist. And, you know, this is all through... Um, not Google. <laughs> there was no Google. I don't know how I found all this information out, but anyway, I researched him up and found all this out. And I thought, wow, being the artist, you know, the budding artist that I was, I really loved what he was on about, you know, rather than just his songs and his different theatrics on stage. Mm. I thought that was all very clever, but I wasn't like, you know, over the moon, like, you know, gushy fan. Anyway, he was Thin White Duke when he came out, I think, in 78. Yeah, he was a Ziggy. And uh, anyway, um, so he... Um, Michael Willisey, remember Mike Willisey? Yes. Okay, he was he, he was the number one current affairs show and I got on very well with Mike and his producer, Phil Davis, and they were really hunting and pushing for Bowie interview. And, I'm go- and this is during the day when there was all that question about bisexuality mm-hmm. and everyone was fascinated in all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, did he have an affair with, you know, did he have a thing with Lou Reed or Mick Jagger and all that kind of stuff going on? And and on top of that, um, the salacious stuff of, uh, you know, he wasn't with Angie anymore and, you know, know, all that kind of rubbish, you know. It was really that that, that sensational, you know, dirt. Juicy goss. Yeah, juicy goss. And uh, anyway, so, so... Mike Willisey was definitely the foot and door journalist type of interviewer. But I used to meet him for lunch, every lunch at this Italian restaurant, and we'd talk about it, and I'd be pitching stories to him and all that sort of stuff. And he was always on about it. And I said, no, nope, he's not doing any of this, he's not doing any of this. And then the more I looked at it, I thought, you know what, I really would love Bowie to do an interview. You know, because if, he could, if I could convince Willisey to be trustworthy and to talk about his art, his music, and go a little deeper, it'll be sensational vision, you know? And I presume that that um, Mick was going to be a good interviewer, mm-hmm. I, I mean, interviewee. So um, so I had that there, planted in there, and then I convinced, I don't know how, but I did. Bowie liked me. He used to have a Range Rover and I used to keep it and we'd go on treks to go wherever. He must have had a lot of downtime too. Anyway, we got on really well and uh, I told him about this and I said, I think this would be great, it would be really good. And it was live and he said, do you trust him? I said, I do. And he said, then I'll do it. His management went ballistic, RCA went ballistic, they said, you can't do it. We, Bowie and I opposed the promoter, the record company and said, no, no, he's going to do it. I'm thinking, well... I can't believe I even stuck my neck out to do something like this. But then I, that's why I used to take these risks. Yeah. Because yeah. I did it because it was artistically interesting and everything. And I cared about who, what they were and the holistic thing. So so the day when we're being – the driver was taking us out to Channel 7 to Epping uh, and I, I remember we're in the car and Die Straits came on, Salt in a Swing – do you know they broke here in Australia first? No. No, they did. But uh, there was a lot of people that broke here yeah, in Australia Yeah, they did. First. Police were also this one of the ones. But, yeah, there's a lot. Anyway, so he'd never heard it. So he. this isn't the fan story. I'm going to get to mm. the fan story, but this is just a highlight of what, how, how good his ears were. So Bowie hears this song and he goes, and it was on Double J, it was on the radio, 
And the driver's, you know, he said, oh, you know, we knew. I said, oh, that's Dye Straits, Salt and Swing. And he said, it's a big kitty. And he goes, oh, he said, they're going to be huge. That's the first thing he said, they're going to be huge. He just knew, you know, and he was right. Anyway, we get to, um, he's real nervous now. It's a long drive from the city to Epping. Because he was quite shy, wasn't he? He was. And we're in the car and I'm in the back with him. And I, I can still picture it. And he's kind of going, this is going to be okay. He goes, this is going to be okay, isn't it? You know, he's very English accent. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, it's going to be fine. And I'm reassuring you. And I put, I've got my head out the window going, what if it's not? Uh. What if it's not? <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, that's it. Oh, we fired. RCA told me not to do this. His manager told us not to do it. The promoter said not to do it. I said, that's it. What am I doing? And I'm reassuring going, no, no, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. I'm going. He better not let me down. But I already got to Willisey. I really worked him. I said, you know what? I know that you're going to do the right thing, Mm. Mike. You're not going to be that foot and door thing and try for the bisexuality sensationalism. You're bigger than that. You're going to go deeper. I've given you all this information. You're going to give people... So I got him so worked up in thinking he's going to be this wise wizard, mm. you know, extraordinary David Parkinson kind of, you know, interview. And I, and, and that's what I did. I played on that, hoping that it landed, you know what I mean? Like, as in landed. And I had to trust. I really had to trust that and? it worked. So we get to the studio... We're in the dark, we're down, we came through the back and we're walking the studio, I'll never forget it, and in the dark, this is before the, they were finishing up with a, a pre-taped uh, one before they went live, mm-hmm. a pre-taped, and he's going, we're going, who's that? I, he said, is that Gregory Peck? And I go, it is, he's promoting his book. And then Bowie's going, I want to meet him. I said, just get behind me. I said, stop it. I said, stop it. He goes, will you introduce me? I said, yes, calm down, calm down. Wow. That's what I mean. Like everyone's a fan of someone. And I said, listen, we have to be cool. We're not going to jump him. Okay. I said, so just, he goes, okay, okay. He said, I'll follow your lead. I go, all right, all right. So we go up in the dark. We come out of the shadow. I said, hello. And there's Mike, you know, the producer and Gregor and they're in the conversation finishing because they just finished an interview. And, uh, and I said, um, oh, good. I said, hello, Mr. Peck. I said, I'd like you to meet Miss David Bowie. And he goes, oh, hello. And then David, we shook hands. We didn't take photos. Yeah. We didn't have iPhones. Wow. And I, didn't have, I, I never carried a camera with you. Didn't just, you just didn't, never did those uncool things, carrying cameras with you, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so, so I remember I was up in the studio and, you know, obviously he met Michael and, and the producer and we're sitting up in the studio box looking down through it and uh and it was going to be two segments half an hour and then um half an hour uh live and then they're going to air it and then um they were going to uh have another segment that they were they'd already edited and going to add it in so who's going to going to be half an hour and i remember um whoever it was said gentlemen take your places and it was like i thought oh my god this is like a you know the swords are going to come out you know. <laughs> And it was the best interview. Wow. And I think, I believe you can get it on YouTube. I'm going to find it on YouTube. It was fantastic. And I was so relieved. So was Michael. uh, I mean, so was David and so was Willisie. And he touched on and he skimmed over 
the sexuality thing, but he just sort of rolled through it and David just rolled over it. And it was just really, oh, it was so good. And it was so good, they went on for the whole hour. Wow, that's that's amazing. And it was a huge ratings thing, you know. And the same with when Lou Reed went on air. How did you get Lou Reed? And the other one was, how did you get David <laughs> Bowie? And it was all me taking a punt because I saw how gifted they were in the three dimension of their talent rather than just that one dimension that we saw of them on stage. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And I was just young, but... It, but I was a risk taker. And you picked and up I on didn't that sort of ca- stuff. But I didn't care. I didn't care that um, I could be wrong because, yeah, I just was guided that way. It was really, you know. It's amazing how you are when you're, you're bolder and then you, you, you uh, as years go on, you seem to clam up. But yeah. I'm back again. I'm oh, bold good. again. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, um, so we could talk for hours. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> we but definitely we could. But there's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Now, let me find. There was a... I forget their name. There was somebody in here. Abba? Oh, Abba. 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 Apparently. You've heard um, heard of them? I've heard of them somewhere. (laughs) But you did a promotional tour to Australia in 1976 with Abba. Yes. I want to know everything. Okay, well, we'll we'll go to the beginning. So Abba, when they first... I was at RCA when they got signed from Polar Records to RCA. And this was this American Bob Cook that I talked about earlier. Because they broke in Australia too, didn't they? They broke in Australia. So yeah. to set the background situation, they they were ahead in marketing where they did all those film clips, Mamma Mia, Knowing Me, Knowing You, Ring Ring, SOS. They compiled all of them ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Because not that we had um, at the time, we didn't have Countdown and Sounds, but by the time um, they won the Eurovision Song Contest in 74, we signed them up for a whole album. So we had a single hit with them in 74 and then uh, then came the rest, Ring Ring, SOS, very jingly pop tunes, mm-hmm. and they had film clips. But by now, 75... Um, Sounds went to air, then Countdown went to air. And Countdown was a bigger radar because Saturday morning was Sounds, it was only 9 to 12, and Countdown was every Sunday night like Mm -hmm. a religious thing and they had huge ratings. And we went colour in 75. And so all these film clips, Sounds were showing it, then when Countdown went to air. Now, I was now, you know, um, a year later in 75, I'm now doing print, you know, media and publicity, and I'm I'm doing radio. I'm taking records to radio. So I'd be taking David Bowie, Lou Reed and King Selvis and all these others, and then I'm taking in ABBA to 2SM. And I had a good relationship with 2SM because they liked all those other records, and I'd take in, you know, Ring Ring, SOS, and they go, get rid of that SHIT. That's how they, get rid of that crap. We don't want to play them. And I'd go, listen here, you might like them, but thousands others will. You know, so 2UW were playing them and others, but I needed 2SM. If you got a record on 2SM, that was it. You could take a holiday because that record was going to be on the playlist and you were going to make it. It was it, If it wasn't going to happen with 2SM, then it had no chance. Mm-hmm. So, so I was, you know, pushing, 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 and I had Ram Magazine, which was a rock magazine at the time they hated them too everyone hated ABBA like I mean as in the rock journalists Mm. and all the peers and they were giving me a hard time and I'm telling them no people like them 
now being a little more, little more prophetic, imagine if I'd said to them very calmly, you might like them, but millions others will into the 21st century. Absolutely. Wouldn't that have been a great statement? <laughs> so what had happened was, so eventually I convinced and pushed Countdown and Molly got them. So he started playing and then we were forced to play Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia went to a number. Anyway, it was a runaway success after that. So, so what happened was in 76... They were really huge. Like, I mean, they had a lot. String of hits. They had Dancing Queen, Fernando, all of them by and, now. And, and that's a fame I don't think anybody understands. Yes. I mean, they couldn't move. They couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't... Oh, that's right. It was a phenomenon. It was it was beyond the Beatles when they toured. Mm. It was, it was uh, unheard of. And when they came out for... Grundy's brought them out to, re, to revitalise Bandstand. And it, was a, and it was an exclusive TV show he had. And he also bought the merchandising rights. So, yeah. Wow. So this was 76 and they weren't touring. They were just doing the TV special. So it was a promo tour. So I got to know them personally because they came out and I was looking after them and, you know, taking them to Quail Parks and this and that and this and just all the shows and Channel 9 and fielding all the promotional stuff that was going on. I've, um, I've seen footage of the girls cuddling koalas. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And... Uh, Anyway, so we did all this for the... And Channel 9 did this whole special. Don Lane and Daryl Summers were involved. And then... Um, and they had... So they couldn't do Countdown because 9 had the exclusivity on them. Mm-hmm. So that was it. Then Paul Dainty put together the tour for 77. All right, 1977, the year later. I'm the Sydney promotions manager. So they're now the biggest group in the world type of thing, but it's all happening in Australia. It's not happening in America. It's not a little bit, yes, in England and Europe, but nothing like here. Mm. One in three Australians had an ABBA record and the demographics was from three to 93. And this was this was monumental. Anyway, so I met them at the airport. So this was the first time Paul, Paul Dainty had the ABBA plane, yeah, mm-hmm. big ABBA plane. And I met them at the airport and then they were going to fly to Perth. And I, I, I knew Stig, who was their manager and, and everything, and I saw them. We had to go onto the platform, drive onto the where the plane was. You couldn't come through the airport part. We mm. had to drive in there to greet them. Did that. And um, I said, Stig, well, I'll see you when you come back to Sydney. And he said, uh, no, he said, uh, you're coming on the road with us. And I said, now, remember, this is 70... Uh, this was 77, I'd already been on one round-the-world trip with RCA and, mm-hmm. and those executives were like, you know, getting losing patience and didn't like my notoriety and mm. popularity and success, you know. And uh, I was 23 or something at the time. And uh, I said, oh, no, Stig, um, Maury, the general manager, and Keith Crono, the national promotion manager, they're going on the road. I will see you in the Sydney because I'm this. He says, no, you're coming on the road with us. And I said, oh, he said, I'm going to speak to Mr. Cook. And I'm going, oh, no, really? He said, I'm speaking to Mr. Cook. So, you know, landline, he's ringing Mr. Cook. I get a call up to the stairs up to Bob Cook's office. And I said, um, he said, Miss Wright? And I said, yes, Mr. Cook. And he said, Stig has said, Apple wants you on the road with them. And I said, I didn't do anything. And he says, I know. He said, but you're going on the road with Abba. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So that's what happened. So I... 
quickly I'm living at home and I quickly mum we're gonna get I'm gonna get packed I'm gonna meet the flight and that to go racing back to the airport to get on the one plane that was going and so that's what it was so I went to we, we went everywhere from Perth and we didn't have a lot we couldn't leave the hotel um but I'll tell you a nice little story about a fan there was a young guy who um I can't think of his name right now but he's in the ABBA movie um uh uh, what is his name? But anyway, it'll come back to me. He was a 17-year-old and he was based in Adelaide and he was started the ABBA fan club. Sweet, sweet guy. And I'm feeding him all the information before they became huge, remember? Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, so I said to him, I'll meet you in, you know, meet me this day, time, you know, at the hotel and I'll, um, I'll come and give you some more ABBA material when I got to Adelaide. Anyway, I told the, the group and, and I got them all into my room. Oh, wow. And he had no idea. So I took him by the hand and I came into my room and there they were. Wow. He nearly passed out. They had to grab him and give him an orange. <laughs> <laughs> it was so sweet. Anyway, um, so we were pretty much prisoners in the hotel room. We couldn't go anywhere. Yeah, so you were you were definitely in, on, well, it says, you, you were in the inner circle. Yeah, I was in the inner circle. And then what happened was, so we, we finished the tour and it was great. And then um, the following year, they, um, you know, they they were, um, so they showed their appreciation and, and gratitude for, for what I did by um, flying me to Sweden and to holiday. And I took my 17-year-old sister and we went to their island. Yes, you told me you went on the island. Yeah, and their island's like a rock po- rock outpost. It's not like there's a there's hundreds of islands. There's not thousands. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there's not palm trees and everything. So Benny, dro- you know, he took us over, and and the little shack that they have, uh, there's quite a few little shacks they had on their island. You know where they stay, and we had our own, and and that one of them's a studio where they record and. I'll tell you a funny story with Benny and Frida. They're the ones I was much closer with. They spoke really good English and Benny was really very gregarious and a lot of fun. Um, um, Bjorn um, was a lot more reserved. They're all reserved, but they were more reserved, the Swedes, uh, these particular... And Agnetha was a lot shyer and quieter and wasn't very, didn't speak very good English. Yeah, she couldn't speak English, but she sang no. in English. Yeah, but she was an absolute delight. They really, really were beautiful people. Really lovely, really lovely, very appreciative. And, and, and I don't... They had no... They couldn't believe the adoration and the love that Australians had for them that was genuine. They knew it was genuine mm. because they didn't expect it. They didn't expect it. Anyway, this time when I was in Sweden, so they put on this big Swedish spread. This was at their place, Frida and Benny's, one night. And anyway, then we went to um, this in Stockholm and then then they, he said, I want to take you out, out out on the town type of thing, you know, Benny and Frida said, I said, oh, great. And uh, so um, there was a club called Alexander's and it was... Uh, and it was like, you know, we're talking the late 70s, you know, those private clubs and, you know, they're pretty sort of cool, like, you know, little keyhole thing. You know, so and, so. and we'd be walking around the streets. No one bothered them. It was just Frida and Benny actually then, but no one bothered them. Anyway, um, so we go to this club and he just wanted to fuss over us and to make us feel comfortable. So he's getting us drinks and, you know, we're getting some nibbles and he's, you know, getting us in the booth and he's getting things done for us and we're just sitting there... And two booths behind us, this big fight breaks out. 
And he was mortified. He was going, oh, God, I'm so sorry, this should <laughs> never happen. I said, don't worry, Benny, I feel right at home. <laughs> <laughs> he got what I was talking about. Anyway, so so I have great memories of them. I really do. And, um, and I didn't meet up with uh, them again until Bjorn came over for the opening of uh, Mamma Mia, the musical, mm-hmm. not the movie, and that was in the 90s, I think, and I was there with Hugh Jackman and Deborah and um, Molly and, you know, all of us, and we just all had a great time and I caught up with Beyond again. That was the only other time. So, yeah, and look how they have, you know, been successful. And, of course, back in uh, 2010, um, there was Abba the Movie, which was a, a film crew we had on the road at the same time that was touring, mm-hmm. while they were touring, And so that ABBA movie came out, I don't know, I think in the 90s or something like that. And anyway, it all went really quiet in the 90s. Remember, there was, it was very, not not cool to like ABBA. Yeah. There was a whole period of that. So in 2010, I get this call from these young um, uh, amateur filmmakers and they said, we're uh, fans of um, ABBA and we want to do a documentary on how they broke in Australia. And I said, uh, and they said, we know that you're the one to speak to because of your, you know, relationship with them and how you work with them, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, sure. I said, so, I said, so tell me, and, you know, when they said amateur filmmakers, I'm thinking, oh, no, fans, like, you know, some people want to do this. And I said, what's your narrative? How do you want to do this? And by now I'm a filmmaker anyway. And... They told me, they said, well, we really want to talk about how Australia was back then and the difference between how they are now and how um, Australia was the one that really broke them, which Abba the movie didn't really talk about that. It mm. just showed how they were in Australia. Anyway, I said, I said I'll support you. I'll, I'll help you. And I told them what to do. I said, go ahead. These are the people. Michael Chug was a tour manager. Paul Danny was a promoter. Vicky Jones was Channel 9. Anthony O'Grady was Ram. Blah, blah, blah. Molly, blah, blah, blah all the different people that were the players mm-hmm. that I could see that would be part of this story, that were part of the story. And I said, um, so talk to these people. And, and they went, great, okay. And I said, and get a commission from the ABC because they will love this and they've got the, they've got all the countdown. They've got everything, you know, so you want their, their catalogue, their, their library. Anyway, they come back to me a little while later and said, I said, how are you doing? We're not getting anywhere. I said, why not? They said, well, no one will talk to us. I said, what, all these people you told? They said, yeah. And I said, why? And they said, because we've never done a film before. And I went, leave it to me. So I rang, I rang them all. <laughs> I just intimidated everyone. Well, if you don't do it, you won't be part of it. <laughs> anyway, and particularly Michael Chuck, I'm not doing it. I'm going, don't worry, you'll be on the editing floor if it's bad anyway. But in the meantime, you won't be in it and you're the tour manager <laughs> and we don't care. <laughs> and he did it. Anyway, so in the end, um, this film came out in 2013 and they asked me to be the ter- talking head, like, can you do a few interviews just to promote it? And I ended up doing like 40 for them. Well, I was happy to do that. And... Uh, it's the most highest rating um, a documentary ABC has put out. And that's Bang a Boomerang. Yeah, Bang a Boomerang. And you could Google, I don't think you'll get the whole film, but you get the trailer anyway. And, you know, they wrote that song, Bang a Boomerang, way before they even got involved with Australia. 
How prophetic was that? Wow. Mm. So that's my ABBA story. Well, I could listen to your stories all night, all day, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get together again one day soon. But thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, it's been um, wonderful. I'm so happy that we finally got to do it after all this time. Yes, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank so, you, Clay. Thank you very much. Any right. <laughs> Yarn About You is a centre stage creative production. Follow us on Facebook by searching Yarn About You or visit yarnaboutyou.com.au for more information about the podcast and our guests.